I think part of execution is, you know, you do need to have that that vision. You do need to have a personality and a leadership and an inspiration that will go across the team. But it needs to have a line drawn in the sand to where that inspiration and vision doesn't become, as you kind of indicated, overpowering to where the team doesn't have a voice, doesn't have courage, doesn't have anything, or the customers don't have a voice or courage. Welcome to the How to Not Execute Your Strategy podcast. I'm your host, Tim Ohai. This podcast is dedicated to the biggest lessons learned from the people who own strategic execution, the senior leaders who live in the center of it. My guest today is Tom Pacello, also known as the ROI Guy. See the show notes for more information about Tom and to also get the leader guide for this episode. Let's get to it. Tom, it is so great to have you on the show today, and I'm super excited that we get to talk, uh, especially with you, because you, your background, I mean, you currently run your own company, but you've you've been the C-level guy, you've been the CEO of a couple of different companies that you've built and grown and sold and then moved to start. The, so I expect our conversation is going to go in some wildly interesting places. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tim, for having me. Um, all right, so let's dive in. Uh, the, the first question I always ask everybody is, tell me about a time when you had a strategy that did not go as planned and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I've got a few to choose from. Um, one that comes to mind is one that cost me a lot of money and time. Um, mm. Two things that, uh, in particular at the time, that are really hard to get back. Uh, so I had this, business had been running great for a while. We had a pretty established product line, and I really wanted to innovate. And, and I love to be innovative. I'm a product guy at heart. So, mm. you know, I love to model myself after Steve Jobs and Jeffrey Moore and, you know, kind of that, that kind of product ilk. And so I had this idea for, I, I practice in the value selling and marketing space. And in value selling, I had this idea, and this was right when an iPad was becoming popular for sellers to start to use in engagements. So what if we could have the iPad and a seller sit next to a buyer and walk them through a little back of the napkin story about the value of the solution and have little, literally back of the napkin calculators to calculate the value? Sounds pretty good, Tim, right? I've, I've, I've literally done this with customers and we're sitting there on a napkin. I mean, so this yeah. was a virtual napkin on the new iPad. And a lot of, at the time, a lot of sales forces were buying iPads for everyone. It was yeah. just invoked to do that. And so we started to develop the application and it came along really well. And um, it looked great. I mean, literally you would go like this and the napkin would flip and there'd be like oh, an so animated napkin on it was an actual napkin on the ipad oh my gosh it's <laughs> so funny tim it would draw the story of the value and then you'd flip the napkin and then there'd be like a calculator and it looked like handwriting and so you'd kind of write in the numbers or you'd type in the numbers as you're going through it and it would calculate it and then you go to the next one and it would be a story and it had great navigation so the product seemed like man what a winner right 
couple of issues. We we didn't really develop the product for one of our existing customers, which would have been great. Now, not that we didn't preview the product for them or anything else, but um, I kind of took this attitude like, I'm innovative. I know what the market wants. Wow. I can be just like Steve Jobs too. Yeah, I'll tell you what you need. Yeah. yeah, dictate to the market. Hey, you know, here's a great product. And like like we're saying, it it sounds great. It looked great. It felt great. But what we started to run into were a couple of issues of adoption that you normally run into, which is, you know, you could have some sellers within these organizations that were armed with iPads, but not everyone had an iPad. Mm-hmm. And we unfortunately went out with just an iPad dedicated solution. Ah. And then what other ones, you know, maybe they needed to have it on the desktop or needed to have it on the web and it just didn't work for that. So we started to run into these very practical um, constraints that some of the customers had or requirements that they needed in order to have this be effective for them. And it just killed overall the adoption. Um, but the challenge was we kind of spent a year doing the the development. You know, this is this is an, a, a time that was a little bit different than today where development is a lot shorter. But thinking back then, you know, it was pretty rapid development. Um, it was production ready. So the whole thing was like buttoned up and ready to go. And we did a roadshow. So we had events in different cities and got wow. good attendance at all of that. But we just couldn't make the sale. And, you know, a couple of million dollars later, a whole year worth of effort, plus maybe another six months or a year before we figured out that, you know, it just had so many limitations and wasn't going to be able to, to kind of recover from that. And when you've got a relatively small company, you know, those, those things are serious, a couple of million bucks and, and a year and a half, two years worth of development, I'll take the wind out of the sails. And you don't have a lot of runway to not get things right, right away. If it's a bigger company, shit, you, you do experiments like this all the time. So there's right. innovative groups, right? But when it's a small company, you got to get it right. You were all in. So, so let me, let me, let me slow you down here. Yeah. When, from the point you officially launched the first date of like, we're now public. How quickly did you start getting feedback that it wasn't on target? Immediately, pretty, pretty and early. Even in the road shows, we were getting feedback like, oh, this thing looks great. It looks dynamite. But what about this? What about that? Mm-hmm. What about, you know, sometimes you can overcome that by finding early adopters that don't care about not having all of those features, right? So were you overly reliant on those early adopters, do you think, looking back? Um, we were not. And in fact, I think we were the opposite. We didn't have those early adopters that co-created the solution with us, Tim. And that's the big lesson that I learned in this was like, look, I'm pretty smart and I know I can create an incredible looking product and everything else, but is it going to be a successful product or not? I think the only way to do that is co-create with some of your key early adopter, innovative type customers. And if we would have done that, we probably wouldn't have developed the exact solution that we had come up with. It would not have been tied to the iPad for one example and been optimized for that environment. It would have been a little bit more generic and might not have had those limitations that ultimately became the the strength of it because it was this incredibly sexy back of the napkin iPad app with drawing and everything else. 
it situation where your vision overtook your ability to see yes completely yeah yeah and and it was was it your strategy or was it your team strategy did you have a bunch of people all strategy i'll fall Uh, on that sword yeah so a lot of ego um a lot of pride in it and probably that kept it going longer than it should we probably should have recognized some of these things earlier and um yeah so that's that's a mistake i will never make again yeah right exactly that's a beautiful thing about this this whole podcast about the stories mistakes you've made and then like i learned and i don't do it anymore i i've had a a, a number of other guests talk about how courage that that's critical mm-hmm. Um, did your team have that courage? Were they missing that courage? Was it just something that they just like, no, we're just going to trust Tom and Tom knows because it's Tom Pasello. I mean, he's the ROI guy. He's, um, yeah, part of having that cult of personality and like that persona is that it's very powerful from a market standpoint. Um, but it can also be, you know, kind of quieting on an internal standpoint to where maybe the organization was recognizing some of these challenges and perhaps didn't have the courage to stand up because of that persona, because, Mm. hey, Tom's got to know what's right here or what's not. Um, So there were a couple of salespeople I had who'd been with me for a long time. One was an IBM veteran that was with me. Gosh, almost 30 years, Betty was with me. She recognized pretty early, like she was able to get us the meetings and start to have the dialogue and start to realize where, you know, these these platform requirements were not going to be met and that we really weren't going to be able to sell this kind of by itself um, without overcoming some of those requirement issues. How long was she kind of raising that? Because it sounds like she, she did ring the bell. Yeah, she did raise those issues. I'm trying to remember it. I mean, it's all, it's a while ago. Um, sure. But, sure. you know, I think six months of just saying, no, it'll come along. It'll come along. And don't forget when those iPads kind of apps were first released, I think all of us were thinking, okay, you know, this is all you're going to use. It's like, why Mm -hmm. why should salespeople walk in with the laptop or anything else anymore? You know, the market will come to us kind of thing was something that I was touting, I think a little bit too much and maybe not listening as, as much as we should. So it was kind of an all bets in on a platform that probably we should have been more conservative about, especially because of the stage of the company that we were at. Well, yeah, you have yeah. the sunk cost, all of that. But where does that go to yeah, your personal? So- you talked about mm-hmm. money and all that and time, but now personally, what was going on inside of you and how did that affect you? Yeah, it definitely knocked me down a number of pegs. You know, here right. I am thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the smartest like Steve Jobs, who could do this. You know, there were very few people, I think, that have that vision. And I think even with those people that have the vision, if you don't have all of the resources and everything else around it, you, you're never going to get there. So, you know, if yeah. if Steve Jobs yeah. was at a different company or didn't have the resources, would he have gotten? Colossal yeah. failure with the company next, that that was going to be his thing. It was going to be better than Apple. And it failed miserably. Um, exactly. You know, I, I remember one of the top angel investors in Silicon Valley once told me, look, Tim, look, ideas are worth a buck. All the money's in the execution. Yeah. Which is why we're doing this podcast. But but the idea, <laughs> though, is that y- you can have all the inspiration on the idea, but if you can't get it to, to get legs, and, and the thing I'm hearing is the legs you planned are not necessarily the legs you're going to need. 
And if you mm -hmm. don't create that capacity, you're not going to execute. Yeah. So yeah. I think that, you know, for me, I still, I'm still a creative. I still love to create, to write, to, you know, whether it be a poem or a book or, or anything. And so I've learned to, from a personal standpoint, have other creative outlets, music being one of them, and mm -hmm. not have it necessarily be in the execution of my business, because I think I use that as my creative outlet and got oh, way over as a result. Yeah. Have you and seen so this pattern other creatives? Other creative leaders have the tendency to kind of do the same thing. They use their creative energy in the execution rather than just releasing it, letting people kind of play jazz with it. And you can just yeah. say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I completely uh, agree with that. Um, any other big lessons from that experience you want to share? Um, just make sure that you're, you know, now I always sell first and kind of develop and deliver second um, rather than develop first and then sell second. So definitely co-creating with your best customers is the way to do it. And I wouldn't approach any kind of product development any other way anymore, especially for earlier stage or even mid-stage companies. You know, as smart as you think you are or you think your team is, that, that co-creation and collaboration need to occur. Mm, beautiful. That's a great launch pad into the next part. Next question is what are two or three attributes everybody in the organization needs to have in order to execute really well? Um, you just talked about co-creation and collaboration. Do you want to put those on your list or do you want to pull a couple others? Um, I think those definitely need to be on the list. Um, I think the other challenge that I had just being self-reflective on it is ego. Mm. You know, it got in the way. And mm. whether that was thinking that we could define a market completely um, and shape it a certain way um, to, in the end, you know, just continuing to, you know, the sunk cost bias of not pulling the plug. I think part of execution is, you know, you do need to have that, that vision. You do need to have a personality and a leadership and an inspiration that will go across the team, but it needs to have a line drawn in the sand to where that inspiration and vision doesn't become, as you kind of indicated, overpowering to where the team doesn't have a voice, doesn't have courage, doesn't have anything, or the customers don't have a voice or courage. That's huge. So I, want, I want to camp on this for a bit because there are so many situations where, frankly, I had a guest from this season talk about how that was pushed out of him the ability to challenge. Because one of his big lessons, you got to trust your gut. And if you can't trust your gut, in Hawaiian, we talk about your na'au. If you don't listen to that voice inside of you and trust it, um, it's going to take you into places you don't have any business being. And that in a corporate environment, especially for those in the audience who are, you're not the head of your company, you're not the solopreneur or the entrepreneur driving a small team, you're larger, um, you've got politics, you've got all this other stuff going on, that voice gets silenced. And especially mm -hmm. if you now add in, you have a leader who's charismatic, visionary, who's who's got a great track record of success, 
what do those people need in order to harmonize and balance the energy that you want those great creative visionaries to bring, but you don't all want it to be overpowered? What do they need in order to balance that out? Hey, if you're enjoying this conversation, I want to encourage you to go to timohai.com slash blog now and get the leader guide. It's an awesome way to allow me to both coach you personally through deeper reflection and to also open up the dialogue with your team. All right, back to the interview. Yeah, they need strong, detail-oriented voices and hmm. executors around them. Definitely. And they need to stay like? here. Yeah. They, um, you know, if you've got someone who's that creative and that inspiration, you've got to have really diligent doers, people that are going to go and take care of all the details, because a lot of times those aren't detail-oriented people. Yeah. And then second, you've got to have challengers and dissenters and let them have a voice on the team. And that's not easy to do because usually that inspirational person has a big personality. They've got a persona. Like I've created yeah. a business person. Um, and a lot of times it's easy for that to be overwhelming for people that are around or that you just have characteristics that are the very old style kind of characteristics, like the, the Bill Gates jumping on the table kind of aspect or the Steve Ballmer up on stage kind of aspect of that old school kind of efforts in management. Um, you know, it's the era that I grew up in. I was up at Microsoft during that time. Um, oh, yeah. so, so you've got to kind of have it to where you're, you're creating a culture where the vision and the inspiration are there, but you are letting the team you're getting out of the way so the team can execute. You're still injecting the spirit and the energy in it, but you're not managing, you're not forcing, you're not doing those things. And it's a tough thing to balance. I, I don't think I've mastered that to this day at 59. So it's, it's, it's really big. Let's, I, let's this whole idea of how do you engineer the right and the key is the right kind of resistance into your culture? Because that's so I, I'll go back to. Um, kind of a change, man change management principle that, that I advise and you've used for decades. And it's true. Um, you've got a third, a third, a third. Roughly a third of the group will, will jump in and just be in no matter what. They're just in. That's just who they are. They're already going in that direction. And what you're saying makes sense. And so they're like easy to, to jump into the boat and start paddling. You've got a third who's going to sit on the fence. They're yeah. going to, sounds good, nod the head, yes, but they're going to wait. And then you got a third who will fight you every step of the way. They're resistant. They don't want to be changed. They're like, look, my God, you, why are you doing this? And all the other different things. Sometimes there's a lot of legitimacy in there that needs to be heard, but it's such a loud negative voice. We tend to tune them out. So I always say, focus on getting your first third to convert your middle third, get those fence sitters off. And, and all you're trying to do is get your resistance down to 20% or less. And it's amazing the math. If my resistance is one out of five, even that person, if they're, even if they're toxic, they're going to pull one fence sitter with them, but it's still three against two mm -hmm. and you'll get stuff done. If you go to 25%, one out of four, they're going to pull that fence sitter with them. And now you got a 50, 50 split, maybe worse because yeah. you only have one out of those four is probably all in. And now you're stuck 
spinning. But at the same time, everybody wants to push to eliminate resistance. I see this all the time, especially in especially in tech, but other companies where they're like, you got to drink the Kool-Aid, you got to be all in. This is our culture. And you just you're just not our culture if you just don't drink the Kool-Aid. And, and I'm like, you're removing yeah, they, the, the people that are resisting just disengage, you know, and that's that's happened to me even at organizations before. Um, and so totally get that. Um, but it's hard. You don't like, you know, when it's your baby and your idea and, yeah. you know, back of the napkin, so, it's so elegant. You want everyone to agree with it. So so what are some of the things you've done in order to build um, that safe space or that healthy space I prefer to use, that per, that healthy space where challenge can be brought up? Um, and, and then what are the rules for that? So it's okay to hear challenge, but if you're just going to vomit on the table, that's not helping anybody. It's just a mess to clean up. And Tim, before we jump to that, one of the things I do want to say is we're living in uh, like the era of the naysayer right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. um, you can anonymously, you know, and even not anonymously, you see people in on sales calls all the time. You'll be doing a Zoom and, you know, you know, the chatter is going on in the background uh, all around what you're saying and presenting and doing. Um, Slack is going off. so. And everyone kind of has a Monday morning quarterback, a, you know, a toxic opinion in a lot of ways. And so there's definitely a culture, particularly in the younger generation of likes and in particular dislikes and comments and in, in some ways, not exactly constructive. So. And I, and you... I will say, I think that's our cultural voice. I mean, I, 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 I go back and forth. I mean, is it a, is it a generational thing? Is it a cultural thing? But our culture has definitely got to the point where you're you're encouraged to mm -hmm. to drop a, a critical truth bomb, so to speak, um, yeah. and to do it from a distance, not not face to face to the person. And 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 now it's become, to your point, um, it's it's become the topic rather than whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Now it's about how do you manage negativity and truth and get the right balance instead of, well, what are we trying to do? Can we still accomplish that? Yeah. Okay. I think, and how I look at how to solve this, I need to look at some of the traits that have led to it not being great um, experiences. And one of those is slowing down. Like, what does that mean? Dramatically. So particularly for my kind of style, very fast thinker, very fast brain, very emotional brain, right? And one of the things that um been working on probably the most is just slow down, listen, seek, seek um, input from every person. And even if they don't provide it, make sure that you've turned to them and given it to them. When someone gives you that feedback, mirror it back. Use a, a therapy technique called mirroring, which is mm -hmm. basically, let me see if I understand what you're saying. And you literally will try to mirror back exactly what they said to you or as close as possible. And you can sometimes shorthand it a little bit. And then you basically, when you do that, you say, is that correct? And if mm -hmm. they say, yes, great. Um, then you say, tell me more to get deeper. Don't leave it at just the first answer. Or if it's not, you can basically get them to say, 
um, they'll basically say, no, here's, here's what I meant to say, or you got all of this right, but here's three things that I think I want, I need to clarify for you. So it's really taking the time. And when you think about the entrepreneurial mindset in particular, mm. and sometimes a creative mindset, like that creative flow that you get into, um, it can be the exact opposite of what you want to do. And, and what every bone in your body is screaming, which is fast, 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 go, 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 um, you know, get on board. And it's the exact opposite. You've got to take the time. And that's very difficult for a lot of, I know it's been personally always difficult for me to, to make sure I'm making that time, to make sure I'm reaching out and getting everyone's input, to make sure that I'm doing the mirroring and mm. not just saying, yeah, I heard what you said, but, you know, mm -hmm. here's something more. No, that's not, you know, this is the, the way. And instead, making sure that the, everyone knows they've been heard. And once you're in an environment where everyone knows that they're heard, then that's when no one's going to be afraid to speak up. And you'll be able to hear the things that ultimately you need to hear to get it right. Because that yeah. collective is always going to be better than just what you're thinking and just you by yourself. 100% agree. And I would, I, I would um, add that I have heard, it's helped me a lot, is this idea that even the most toxic people, 10% of what they're saying is true. Find it. Find mm -hmm. it. Give yourself the time to draw it out. Sort, sort through all the, the crap. Find the 10% truth. Mirror that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the conversation can become this beautiful thing because yeah. you're not disregarding the other stuff verbally. You're just putting the energy into the part that you're like, I, I agree with this, or I, I want to know more about this. Yeah, and that tell me more. feels yeah. heard, wants to share, will share. They may throw on the other stuff and you're going to have to keep waddling, you know, waddling through it. But, but at the end of the day, um, having been on both sides of this discussion, there, there's there's so much truth in that 10% that if you don't catch it, it could be the thing that keeps you from spending a year and a half and million bucks on something that shouldn't have been carried that far. Exactly. What else would you add to this this list? And, and I, I kind of want to prime the pump here because I know you've done a lot of work around um, personal energy and growth and, and we're both for the audience. We're both widowers and um, I've been on Tom's podcast and I'm in his book um, as a, as a chapter in my own story, but you know, the, what's going on inside our hearts and in our heads actually transcends this whole conversation. So would you, would you go there for a little bit and talk about how that ties into how you execute it, especially how you be the leader who can do this? Yeah, there's, there's a lot I learned through loss and grief. Um, lessons that were hard won. Um, everything from gaining my sobriety, now six years sober, well done. to, um, you know, to losing 60 pounds and getting myself in physical shape so that I can be there for my daughters. Um, so on the personal growth standpoint, I think part of what I learned is we're never too old to learn. We're never too old to grow. And we're never too old to reinvent ourselves because all of this happened for me when I was 
53 is when the loss occurred. So it's about six years ago. And, um, you know, I had to reprioritize things a lot. Uh, for me, it was always work, 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 work. And then all of a sudden the illness comes along and it was yeah. a 10 year roller coaster battle uh, with cancer. Um, first breast and then brain uh, glioblastoma. And during that, I took some time off, turned the company brains over to someone else, but I'd still get back in and still, you know, still work was still the primary. And mm. what I found was that after the loss and after kind of re-examining things, it wasn't as important. And I really felt like I needed to re-explore my why. Why am I doing these things? Um, and what do I want to accomplish in life overall now that I'm in kind of that second or second half or last, you know, third of my life, depending on life expectancy. And so that's why I decided, Tim, to, to use some of that energy and experience and, you know, God-given gifts to create the book Growth Through Grief and do the podcast and, and some of those other things. And I'll tell you, it was part of the journey that uh, I'm so glad I did because I think I've grown so much from it, from business capability and retrospective and, and you know, just some of the improvements that we spoke about, whether it be fitness or, or alcohol or faith. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that got reinvented and recaptured in my mm -hmm. life that I didn't have before. And I think we have to remember that, that, you know, we get so wrapped up in our identity being our business identity and our identity being work, work, work. And there's more to life than that. And family first, um, you know, is definitely part of it. That is so well said. That is so well said. I, I will say consistently um, in my own coaching practice here that I, I run into people all the time who define their identity by the strategy they're executing. Yeah. And I, I, my friend, you are so much more than that. Um, so Tom, thank you so much for sharing your journey, uh, lessons from the, from the front lines, uh, including lessons from the, the, the medical tent, uh, as well as, um, just the continuing contribution you bring to both the business world and the personal one and bringing them together so that we can truly be the best versions of ourselves when we show up to work. Then when we go home, it's uh, been a joy. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode and have some solid takeaways. Here are three that I want to highlight. One, beware the danger of allowing your vision to overshadow your ability to execute. If the energy of your big idea dominates the conversation, it can shove difficult topics like readiness and dependencies to the side. Two, sell first, develop and deliver second not the other way around. You need that co-creation and collaboration with those customers to make sure that you are executing what will ultimately be adopted and valuable to your greater market. Three, you have to balance the energy of innovation with the autonomy that your teams need to make their own decisions. This is really hard to do because the tendency for visionary leaders is to kill one or the other. If you enjoyed this episode, there are three things that I would ask of you. First, please share it with at least one person. 
Second, hit those rating stars on whatever platform you downloaded this podcast. When you do that, it raises the visibility of what we are talking about to people just like you. Third, follow me on LinkedIn and Meta, especially on Instagram at Tim underscore Ohi. You'll get even more content that will both challenge and inspire you. Holomua. Onward and upward.